Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, as I'm sure that you already know, the worldwide psychedelic and tech communities have lost a man who was a giant among us, John Perry Barlow. Although our longtime fellow saloners are quite aware of all that John Perry has done for us, if you are new to the tech or the psychedelic scenes, well, don't worry, because by the end of this podcast, you're going to know a great deal about the life and work of this dear man. Now, I don't mean to imply that I knew him really well. The fact is, we only met on a few occasions. However, I clearly remember that first time that we met. It was in 2003 at Burning Man, and he attended the talk given by Allison and Alex Gray, and it was the first of the Planque Norte lectures that year. And after the Gray's talk, John Perry stopped by our camp and spent several hours visiting with some of us under our shade structure. And to be honest, well, I was awed just to be able to talk with him. Because in the circles that I moved in, John Perry Barlow was already a legend. For one thing, he first came to my attention as a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. And while I wasn't a dedicated deadhead myself, well, I did like their music and owned several of their CDs. But how John Perry first captured my attention was when he published his Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. And if you've never read that essay, well, you should. It's really that important. And to be sure that you don't miss it, at the end of today's podcast, I'm going to play a recording of John Perry reading it himself. Now, at the time he published his declaration, the Internet was still almost unknown to most people. Back then, even people who had access to the net spent less than one hour per month surfing the web. And my job back then was to travel to conferences across the U.S. and Europe and speak about what a truly marvelous thing the Internet was going to be. In essence, I was the Internet evangelist for the company now known as Verizon. And in my talks, I read excerpts from the Declaration, which begins... Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. End quote. And as you may guess, uh, <laughs> well, that wasn't really well received by those in the upper reaches of management. Uh, but those on my level understood, and many of those young women and men that I met at conferences are now leaders in various tech fields, and hopefully a few of them still remember those rousing words of John Perry's, and they are continuing the struggle to keep the Internet free. But I digress. When I first learned of John Perry's death last week, I began looking for some of his talks that I could possibly use here in the salon. Now, while he had been in the audience of the first series of the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man, and he was one of us, still I never found a way to work in some of the more tech-oriented and political talks that he had given. But this time, my search was more than fortuitous. I found the talk that we are about to listen to on archive.org. It was given on November 17, 2006, at Southern California University. 
and there were only about 50 people in the room. Additionally, there was a second speaker, John Gilmore, who you've heard from several times here in the salon. And on top of that, this two-man panel was introduced by Cory Doctorow, another Planque Norte speaker, who you've heard here in the salon several times as well. So, how could I resist playing this talk? <laughs> Obviously, I couldn't. <laughs> now, uh, if you're under 30 years old, much of what you're going to hear about the early history of cyberspace that John Perry begins with is probably going to be new information to you. But if you're a dusty old fart like me, you'll remember these stories about the early government raids on hackers as something that you had to live through yourself. In my recent book, The Chronicles of Lorenzo, one of my stories mentions the fact that even if we aren't fully aware of it, the news from our towns, our countries, and the rest of the world seeps into our minds like elevator music. And in some cases, it can even provoke subliminal suggestions that involve a wide range of emotions. My phrase for this is, history is the background music of our lives. So, now let's listen to a little of what was once background music to many of us, as Cory Doctorow opens the evening's discussion. Uh, we do have two fantastic speakers tonight, uh, John Perry Barlow and, and John Gilmore, two of Electronic Frontier's co-founders and two real giants of technology, cyber liberties, uh, the internet, the personal computer, uh, software, uh, uh, and, um, and as well as numerous causes now. Um, uh, Gilmore uh, couldn't fly down here because he's embroiled in a legal action uh, that's, that's headed, we hope, towards the Supreme Court over the right to fly anonymously and the requirement for the TSA to show that to show the, the, the content of the rules that govern whether you can or can't fly anonymously. So um, uh, one of my students, Andy, and I uh, flew up to San Francisco yesterday and drove on down. He's taking the night bus home tonight. Um, uh, Barlow, uh, in addition to co-founding EFF and writing some of the Grateful Dead's Best Love songs and the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, and co uh, also co-founded uh, 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 Earth, Earth First and Greenpeace. No, I didn't co-found Greenpeace. You didn't co-found Greenpeace? No, no. Co-founded Earth First, I beg your pardon. I had a lot to do with it. Had a lot to do with it. And, and, and Gilmore uh, helped found one of the first LFISPs and, and uh, uh, helped write probably the most widely used compiler and uh, funds a lot of uh, drug activism, the right to, to control your own state of mind and, 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 and therefore choose what you're going to ingest and what it does to you, among many numerous other causes. And between the two of them, they're, they're two of the most inspiring and interesting speakers I've ever heard. Uh, and you came here to hear them and not me. So I'm going to sit down now and let them take it. Thank you very much for coming. Well, you know, this will be a strange thing to say in this particular context, but <clears throat> one of my objectives in life is to eliminate broadcast media. Um, so I'm not terribly interested in being one, and I'm not sure that John is either. Uh, so to the extent that we can make this a conversation, and I, I see it's a fairly large group to have a conversation with, uh, this is what we would aim to do. Uh, there are... I mean, over the course of the time that, that he and I have been working together, which is 16 years, uh, a lot has happened in cyberspace. I mean, actually, it hadn't even been named when we first started dealing with it. Uh, in fact, 
people didn't think of it as a place of any sort or an environment of any sort at that time. So even though 1988 seems like a reasonably recent time in, you know, normal human terms, it's, uh, it's, it's like in the police scene as far as the Internet is concerned. So over the course of that time, there have been a great many issues that we've dealt with. Uh, and we can go through some of the early history of the EFF for those of you who don't know about it. You know, what, what the issues were that, that caused us to, to form it in the first place. Uh, just to set the parameters here. Uh, I will tell you, just as a, an executive summary, that the EFF exists so that your descendants will have the right to know, regardless of where they are on this planet. And that if one of them wants to say something, he will be able to, or she will be able to. And if somebody else wants to hear what that person has said, they will be able to. It's as simple as that. I mean, we are, we are right at the precipice of a golden age in human history where everything can be known by anybody who's interested, thanks to the Internet. And we believe that. And EFF exists to try to make certain that the underlying architecture of this great room in which all humanity is gathering will go on being an open room and not one that is that is filled with chambers and hierarchies and powers that make it difficult for the the uh, the no nots to go on knowing not uh, too much power has been distributed over the course of time by the ability to control information too much liberty has been has been uh, seized against the notion that there were certain things that were dangerous to know. We don't believe that anything is dangerous to know. There are dangerous things to do. But we believe that, that nothing is inherently dangerous to know. Nothing. We didn't have such a clear notion back when we started EFF. I mean, in the very beginning, I don't think we were thinking about an organization at all. I, I was a cattle rancher in Wyoming. John at least had the advantage of having been on the Internet since what? 1976. 1976. I, I was a, you know, a Johnny-come-lately. I, you know, I, I was raising cows and, and uh, not thinking about these things until 85 when well, I... Well, I wasn't allowed to be on the Internet. No, but you were there. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't allowed to be on the Internet when I got on either. But, uh, you know, it was easy enough to, to do. You didn't necessarily have to be a defense contractor, uh, though they preferred that. But the first time I got online, it was a place that had probably 200,000 people on it, if that. But I knew, and I think John had known well before that, that this was going to expand as, as uh, exponentially as it has to include every man, woman, and child on the planet sooner or later. You know, and we would all have to be in there together without any of the usual defining constraints of sovereignty, borders, legal, legal uh, uh, systems of one sort or another, languages, 
religions, political systems, and that there was going to be an inevitable amount of um, friction. Friction. <laughs> Furthermore, you could see from the very beginning that if, if this thing was going to do what we thought it was going to do, that it would cause a fundal, fundamental renegotiation of all the existing power relationships on the planet, which it is now in the process of doing. Uh, and people have various uh, long-standing agreements with themselves and the rest of their elites that they have some right to these authorities that they may not inherently have when the world becomes a meritocracy of, of thought, a collective organism of, of the human genius. But it all started out much simpler than Back in about 1980, well, I first met John, actually, at a hackers conference, which was not hackers in the present sense of the term. It was, it was people like Steve Wozniak and, and the folks who actually created all this technology originally. And um, I was just suddenly, I was getting out of the cattle business, and I was suddenly interested in this other thing that was happening that I'd, I'd seen online. And I wanted to find out who these wizards were who were making it. So I, I became interested in that fashion. I, I, I was interested in, actually, I was interested in the deadheads, oddly enough. I mean, the, the, the people who followed the Grateful Dead. I, I wanted to understand. I lived in a little agricultural town in Wyoming. And I wanted to know what was going to happen to community in America after all those little towns went away. And I was looking at other forms of emergent community. And I thought, well, the deadheads might be one way of looking at it. But it, because I wrote songs for the dead, it was difficult for me to study them without sort of the Heisenberg sociology effect of, of you know, as soon as I came around, that I wasn't getting a straight read. Hmm. And somebody suggested, well, you could get online. There are a lot of, there are a lot of them online. And I didn't know what that meant. There were Usenet news groups already of deadheads. So I got an account, which was, in those days, trying to get online was a, you know, you had a 300, 300 baud modem, and, you know, it was heavy lifting, a lot of Hayes command codes, and it an was exercise tricky. exercise in futility. Oftentimes. And, um, but as soon as I got there, I thought, well, yes, there is a community of these people, and this is really interesting, but there's a community of a lot of other folks, and they're just mostly talking about bits and bytes and how to make the system work. They're not talking about the politics. They're not talking about the economics. Or even about music. Or even about music that much, no. And, or, or certainly none of the issues that now preoccupy us with the film industry and, and copyright and, and all these issues. That hadn't really come up yet. Yeah, so it's actually a little surprising that it took, like, uh, 20 years of the ARPANET and Internet's existence and 10 years of the public Internet before it occurred to very many people to start moving music on it. Right. Well, there wasn't much bandwidth. I mean, how much music are you going to move on a 300 baud modem? I mean, unless... Overnight? Um, yeah, over, over the course <laughs> of a week, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. You mean just, like, dead tapes, right? Or, yeah. Well, there other kinds of music? Well, there were all kinds. But... Like, Actually, in those days, like, people coordinated the trading of dead tapes through the mail. Yeah, that was what happened. By sending email to right, each other. Right, exactly. That was what they were mostly talking about was how to, you know, you got a, you got a, uh, a Omaha 73, man. I, you know, I'll 
I'll send you one for a Rochester, you know, 87. Um, so I thought, look, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff, but nobody else is writing about it, so I'll start writing about it just because it's interesting to me. And I'd established myself somewhat as a writer on this subject. And then Harper's Magazine did something that I, was incredibly prescient. Uh, they decided to have a forum about hacking and cracking and privacy and freedom of expression online uh, in 1989. And they included me and Mitch Kapor, my colleague at EFF, and several other folks, including a couple of uh, computer crackers named Fiber Optic and Acid Freak. Fiber Optic and Acid Freak seemed like the worst desperados I'd ever seen, or hadn't seen, because they were invisible to me, but they were coming on awful strong. And, you know, they just seemed like a couple of godless little nihilists. I mean, I was having sort of an old hippie response to them. And... Um, at one point, I irritated them in this forum by saying, you know, if somebody took away your modems and gave you skateboards, it wouldn't make a nickel's worth of difference. And this insulted them because it was partly true. So they, they downloaded my entire credit record into the conference and, and suggested, erroneously as it turned out, that they could change it permanently to my everlasting disadvantage. I mean, I'd be standing in money order queues at the post office for the rest of my life. That's scary, you know. I mean, I've been in police custody on acid, and I wasn't as scared as I was of those two guys. <laughs> and um, so I, I emailed them, and I said, look, you know, we've exceeded the bandwidth of this medium, I think, and I won't... I'd like to have a phone conversation with you, and I won't insult your intelligence by giving you my phone number because I knew that they would, they would hack it out of the system immediately just to prove that they could. And uh, surely in 15 minutes I was talking to them. Now their voices hadn't even changed yet. They were a couple of little pencil, pencil neck geeks who were basically trying to violate the forbidden. I mean, they actually wanted to violate another forbidden, but they hadn't you know, quite gotten up to that yet. <laughs> and, um, and they were also, in, in fairness, trying to create their own internet using the, the telephone network. They were hacking into the phone system and creating their own people's uh, internet since they didn't have access to the real one. And they had uh, something called the Legion of Doom. And shortly enough, I found myself like the scoutmaster to the Legion of Doom, which is, you know, life takes odd turns. Um, but I liked these kids. And then... A series of events I became familiar with through them and, and through other sources started to occur. There was a, a games outfit, role-playing game outfit in Austin, Texas named Steve Jackson Games. And one day the Secret Service came in and took everything in the office, all the computers, everything, because they were producing a role-playing game called Cyberpunk, which the Secret Service thought was a handbook for computer crime. Uh, just to clarify here, games in those days came on paper. Yeah, it was just a book. <laughs> but they didn't the know that. And maybe a you game know, and board. The Secret and Service was, was you know, completely clueless about this. Um, and that disturbed me. It sounded like it was kind of an overbroad search. 
And then there was a there was a kid named Eric Nidorf in Illinois who uh, who had suddenly been you know hit with with heavy felony charges for having for having published in his online magazine a document called the 911 document, which was an extremely abstruse description of the way the 911 system worked in the Bell system. You know, I mean, it, this was better than chloroform in print. I mean, if you could read this whole document without going to sleep, you'd, you'd have to work for AT&T. <laughs> but, and, and furthermore, it was readily available from Bellcore. But somebody had, had hacked into a system in Georgia and taken it out as, as a trophy. You know, just a coonskin to nail to his hacker door. And Eric Nidorf had republished it, and Eric Nidorf was suddenly being charged with, uh, you know, serious crimes of publishing, you know, secrets vital to the, to the safety of the United States. I, w- I still wasn't paying much attention to it. Then I get a phone call from Acid Freak, and I find out that he's come home and found his 12-year-old sister being held at gunpoint by uh, several large men from the Secret Service while they remove every electronic item in the house, including clock radios, and every bit of magnetic media, including his Metallica tapes. And he's scared. And I think, well, no, wait a second. You know, maybe these kids are worse than I think. I mean, maybe they're doing something really bad. Seemed unlikely. But nevertheless, it seemed like they were coming down with such maximum law that it was possible. So... I got more concerned, and I and then there was a break point where I got a phone call from Special Agent Richard Baxter in Rock Springs, Wyoming, from the FBI. And I knew Agent Baxter. I mean, when I was in the cattle business, he'd helped me get some some cattle back that had been stolen. He was a good hand with cattle wrestling, actually. That's probably only one FBI guy in Wyoming. In Western Wyoming, and he was it. he was it. And. Um, you know, I'd go, always gotten along with him fine, but he, he calls me up and he's, he's, he's nervous as hell. And that's always a bad sign up front. And then, and then he says, I need to talk to you and I can't talk to you over the phone. I really don't like that. So he's going to drive 100 miles north to talk to me in person. So, you know, and I, I'm still heavily affiliated with the Grateful Dead where, you know, crimes have taken place. I don't consider them crimes, but Thought crimes. there are certain members of the federal government who do. So I'm nervous about what it's going to be. And he, he comes up, and he's, he's just he's quaking with, with uh, anxiety about this. And I finally get him calmed down. And he tells me that he's investigating something called the New Prosthesis League. Well, actually, it called itself the New Prometheus League. But this was only the beginning of, of Agent Baxter's misinformation about this thing. The new Prometheus League had taken some of the source code from the Apple Macintosh ROMs and was shipping it around on floppy disks. Tells you how long ago this was. As a protest against Apple's closed and proprietary architecture. But what Agent Baxter believed was that what was really happening was that they were shipping around the the recipe to the Apple, the secret sauce. And that if this got shipped around in general, this is what Apple had got him to believe, this got shipped around in general, you know, then the Taiwanese would be turning out Macintoshes and it would be the end of the great American industry. And he was there to protect our industrial interests. 
But I had to spend two hours explaining to him what source code was, what a ROM chip was, what, you know, what the crime was if it wasn't need a crime, before I could even start to tell him why I was not likely the person who had, who had committed it. And I thought, this is not a good sign. Because every time I see, you know, some well-armed, insecure guy wandering around a place he does not understand, with the likely possibility that they're more where he came from, I think it's something you kind of have to start thinking about and dealing with. And it, and it also put what was happening to my, my young friends in the Legion of Doom into another perspective. So I wrote something about it, and I put it on a bulletin board called The Well, which was a kind of a, a salon for writers and, you know, early digerati, where it was read by Mitch Kapor, who had founded Lotus. Now, Mitch, as it happened, had been visited by the FBI in connection with the same thing and had been fingerprinted. Now, he's, he's president of a you know, fairly large company. He's, you know, suddenly the FBI is in his office fingerprinting him. He's not used to this stuff, and he's a little nervous anyway. So he doesn't even tell his wife about it. This happened to my girlfriend, too. She worked at Apple at the time, and they right. fingerprinted her to see if she had, if any of her fingerprints had showed up on any of those floppies, like maybe she was the one who stole it. Right. And she was really nervous about this because she worked in a lab at Apple that just had a stack of spare floppies. You know, anybody could pick them up, use them, put them back, whatever. So her fingerprints could have been on all those floppies. So anyway, I wrote something about this, and I put it on the well. And Mitch reads it and says, Aha, suddenly I have a support group. I mean, this weird thing has happened to me that is very disturbing to me, and now I, I know there's somebody else out there that has had the same weird thing happen. So the next day, he happens to be flying his biz jet across the country, and he calls me up from over North Dakota and asks if he can land a Canada Air Challenger at uh, Pinedale Airport, which, as it happens, one can't. And I said, sure. And, and he just literally dropped out of the sky. And we sat down. We spent the entire afternoon going over the things that I knew about Eric Nydorf, about, about Steve Jackson Games, about the Legion of Doom. And he got increasingly upset and toward the end of the afternoon we called up Rabinowitz Boudin which was a you know hot shot first amendment firm in in New York uh, that had that had successfully uh, uh, handled the the Pentagon Papers case and they thought that there was maybe something fishy going on I mean they could see that there was prior restraint going on that there was overbroad search going on that you know that if the constitution applied to this environment to, the, to, to these kinds of media then which it presumably ought to then there were there were problems so at that point Mitch and I thought well all we're going to have to do is bring a few cases here you know slap them around a bit Get everybody to understand that, you know, the Constitution does apply to digital media, you know, and dust our hands off in satisfaction and go on. Not realizing, for example, that, you know, in cyberspace, the Constitution is a set of local ordinances. You know, it doesn't actually apply anywhere in this environment. Not realizing a lot of things yet. But we did, we did start to initiate legal action and started to make some fuss. And at this point, John, who I knew from the Hackers Conference, who I, I had not thought 
of being a man of any particular resources since the only time I'd ever seen any of his resources, it was the, like the worst motorcycle I'd ever taken a ride on. <laughs> 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 yeah. It had been in the rain, and the, the, the cover was off the back of the seat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Only, <laughs> you know, so the on, covered. You sit on the back, and you know, it's, you know, it's you're, wet. you're wet for a while. Um, but I get this this email from John says, well, I, I may not have the same resources as Mitch, but would $100,000 help? And I wrote back and I said, yes. <laughs> because, I, because I could see that these cases were actually going to get sort of complicated, which they did. And at that point, we realized that we, had to, we actually had to have an organization, that it was not just going to be Mitch and John go off to cyberspace, you know, like some kind of frontier uh, duo like the Lone Ranger and Tano, I, I guess I would have been Tano. Um, and, you know, establish peace just in the American way. It was going to be trickier than that. So that was kind of how we got started. And, and at first, you know, we, we didn't really know what we were doing except for the fact that we wanted to make sure that this thing started out free and stayed free as long as we could make it because it had been made to be free. The people who designed the Internet understood that its in inherent characteristic was a kind of anarchy. I mean, I once had a conversation with a guy named Paul Barron, who invented packet switch networking, which is the basis for the Internet, while he was working at the RAND Corporation. And it was widely thought that he had done this because he was supposed to be coming up with a... With a command and control system that could not be decapitated by nuclear attack. And I asked him one time, I said, were you, were you trying to come up with something that simply couldn't be decapitated by nuclear attack? And he said, no, I was trying to come up with something that didn't have a head. And he gave me that sly look as, as you know, secret anarchists do when they, you know, <laughs> they think about how cool it would be not to have a head. Of things. <laughs> and, um, so, so all those guys had had some sense of this, the people who'd, who'd been designing it originally. But we could see that now that it had been discovered by the powers that had been, that there were going to be Agent Baxter's up the gazette. And there were. I mean, immediately, the Secret Service was all over everything. The FBI was all over everything. Fortunately, they were stumbling around with such massive incompetence that we were generally spared their despotism by that. But it was also a turf war where the Secret Service was trying to, who was only responsible for protecting the president and dealing with counterfeiting, decided, well, here's a new area we could expand right. into the internet. Right. Thereby, new budget. the FBI, you know, can't do that. That's our job. So they had exactly. to make a big so splash they're, they're, by running around and arresting a lot right. of people. Right. Seeing who, who could arrest the most people, you know, in the most furious count. Well, and get the biggest news headlines. And get the biggest news headlines and scare the hell out of the American people who are suddenly getting really agitated about this stuff. After we, we, we won just about everything we took on in the beginning. In fact, we did win everything we took on in the beginning. But we could, we could see that there was a whole lot more to come because down in D.C., all the traditional... Media companies, Time Warner, and you know, not traditional media companies like AT and T. You mean Time and Warner? Yeah, Time at that time, Time <laughs> and Warner. <laughs> were were cooking up something that they called the information superhighway, 
which was which was actually interactive television, you know, which would be you know about as interactive as having a buy button on your channel clicker. Uh, but this would supplant the internet. This would be better, and you know, the internet was basically regarded as being like ham radio it was not to be taken seriously. And we so we moved our offices to D.C. to try to start fighting the regulatory uh, processes that were going to, you know, enable the information superhighway to kill the internet. At a certain point in there, we did realize that the Constitution was a local ordinance, and that all these regulations were were also somewhat local in nature. And that the real issue was, I mean, Mitch just casually dropped this line at one point that was our watchword and has been ever since. Architecture is politics, he said. By which he meant that if you wanted to assure rights in cyberspace, you couldn't count on the law to do it anymore. You had to count on the architecture of the network and keeping that open to all manner of trans transmissions and keeping people or institutions more often from dividing it up into zones where some things were permissible and some things weren't because we knew intuitively that if you can control any part of the internet in any fashion, you can control it all. <coughs> I would say that's, that's still an accurate statement. No, it's like the Chinese can't control the whole internet, though they control part of the one in their region, but they don't the idea really here very is much. I was just in China. If you get <laughs> legal leverage over the internet, then that starts right. getting, you yeah. know, you give them an inch and they take a mile. Well, and also... So we yeah. wanted to stop that first inch right. as long as possible. They can start controlling the technology. They can start yeah. tr controlling the way in which the, the architecture worked, they, the way in which, which routers work. They could, they could impose technological considerations that would, you know... So, there, you know, there are many things that have happened since then. And, you know, it's gotten more and more complex. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason I want to have this conversation with you is because there are so many things that we can talk about, whether it's federal wiretapping, which we are, you know, intimately uh, engaged in, uh, cryptography, which John, you know, spearheaded uh, uh, our work in, you know, by by getting us to take on the Bernstein case, which which proved that cryptography algorithms were a form of speech, and trying to trying to stop strong cryptography was tantamount to, to prior restraint on on free speech, which enabled you know, in, by the way, uh, you know, the formation of real business on the net because without strong cryptography, nobody was going to trust financial transactions there. Uh, Mitch and and. Jerry Berman and Dave Farber and I uh, started something called the, the Commercial Internet Exchange, which lobbied the, the National Science Foundation, which had taken over the Internet from the Army, or from the Department of Defense, and was running it on the condition that no private traffic, no commercial traffic could, take, could, could pass over, which was a poppycock, of course, but we felt like it was necessary for there to be commercial traffic and for there to be private carriers and private ISPs. And so we, we banded together with several budding private ISPs, including UUNet, PSINet, and several others, and got the, got the National Science Foundation to privatize the Internet. 
I mean, there have been times since when I wondered if that was such a great idea, but I, I know that it was, I mean, in essence. Because, I mean, if it's going to reflect what human beings do in all their dimensions, it has to have commerce in it. We have taken on, God, I mean, it's such a, it's such a lengthy list, but it, it was quite a while before we decided that issues relating to copyright were going to be hugely important. And in fact... Well, it's not, it's not quite true. We went through sort of the search and seizure phase in the beginning, yeah. and we kind of cleaned that up more or less. And then we went through a whole censorship phase where Communications Decency Act, trying to protect children... Right from actually you know, trying to prevent adults from seeing things that other people didn't want them to see. And we went through a whole cryptography and yep. privacy set of years. Yep. But uh, actually fairly early in that process, we realized, John Perry in the lead, that copyright was going to become a huge issue. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece for Wired, not, not ex-cathedra EFF. I mean, I was not speaking on behalf of EFF. Uh, but I just had this this insight that copyright was going to take a terrible beating in a time when you could suddenly reproduce anything that human beings could think infinitely and distribute it infinitely at zero cost. And since I know that you know outside of outside of sex and hunger and shelter, you know the thing that that human beings are most attached to is sharing information that they find relevant. It was going to be very difficult to contain this stuff henceforth, and that all these all these industries, like the recording industry, the movie industry, the publishing industry, that had based their authority on their ability to to create a scarcity of information, were going to take a terrible beating. Now, I tried to convince my colleagues at EFF that this was going to be a, a, a big problem, and at first. I mean, John was the only one that agreed with me. Uh, oh, no. Well, I think we all agreed it would be a big problem, and really the question was, what could we do about it? Well, no, but also, I mean, frankly, that we were getting a huge amount of money from, from outfits like Microsoft. Yeah, that didn't really enter into my calculations. Well, it, it sort of entered into Jerry Berman's, who was our exec executive director in those days. And, in fact, when I published this piece, even though it was not published in my role as EF, at EFF, Bill Gates withdrew all of his personal support, which had been considerable, and all of his corporate support, which had been considerable, and, and actually told his employees that they were not to support EFF any longer. So that was, you know, that was a warning sign. Mm -hmm. So we, it, it took us a little while to, you know, sort of come to grips with the fact that we were going to lose about half of our funding if we took this up as an issue. But the reality was, and, 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 and continues to be, that the principal obstacle to free speech in cyberspace is the idea that you can own speech. You cannot own free speech. There are a lot of ways to monetize it without owning it. There are plenty of ways to create a relationship between the, the creator uh, and the, whether musician or whomever, and the audience that do not involve property. But property is just not going to work there. It's the wrong model. And furthermore, it's, it's, it's the wrong model as a practical matter because information may have completely different economic characteristics than physical goods. 
Well, indeed it does, and we know it does. I mean, in the physical world, there's a, there's a clearly coupled correlation between scarcity and value. I mean, Adam Smith pointed this out a long time ago, and he was right. And there's an assumption that the same applies with regard to information. Especially, you know, if the information is encapsulated in books and CDs and physical objects that are manufactured. It looks like any other physical thing. But once you take away those containers, you know, which, interestingly enough, is about the same time they started calling it content, you know, when the containers went away. Uh, once you take away those containers, it becomes liquid and leaks like crazy. And, you know, it was just... It was going to be difficult to hang on to it, but furthermore, there might be good reason to think that one wouldn't want to. I mean, when I was writing for The Grateful Dead, we decided at a certain early point that we were going to let people tape our concerts. Mostly because we felt bad about kicking out deadheads. I mean, it's not good for your karma to be mean to a deadhead. I mean, they're, they're hapless folks. <laughs> you know, and mean as we were, we, you know, there was something about the baleful glances that these kids would cast as we kicked them out of the concert with their tape recorder that you know, got to us. And, and we said, finally, we said, well, we're not in this for the money anyway, which was easy to say because we weren't making any. So we said, well, all right, tape them, not realizing that what we were doing was creating viral marketing. You know, we had a marketing technique that suddenly was much better than anything that Warner Brothers had come up with us for us because... Those tapes spread and became, an, you know, an article of currency in, a, in a, a community that eventually became so large that we could, we could fill any stadium in the country anytime we wanted to. Three nights in a row. Yeah, mostly by hauling our audience around with us, but, <laughs> you know, but we could. Right. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm curious, actually, how many of you have heard The Grateful Dead? That many. How many of you have been to a Grateful Dead concert? How many of you heard it on recordings just passed around? Right. Well, don't listen to our records. They're uniformly They're bad. <laughs> but the tapes are sometimes pretty hot. Um, but we saw that, you know, actually there was a relationship between familiarity and value. It was exactly the, the obverse. You know, the less scarce we made our product, the more valuable it became. Yep, and I had the same experience at my last business. Exactly. Um, turns out I made a whole pile of money starting a company that wrote free software and gave it away. Um, we, Very freely. We uh, wrote and maintained the GNU compiler tools, which uh, are still probably the most used uh, programmer tools on the internet and gave them away not just for free but with full rights for you to take them and give them to all your friends right. to sell them to as many people as you could sell them to and to go in and modify them and make them better or worse and sell that or spread it around or use it yourself it's uh, so-called free software that Richard Stallman had envisioned and a large bunch of volunteers had created. Well, we said, there's so many people using this stuff, there's probably a business in helping them. 
it, it was very hard, actually. Yeah, well, there well, aren't Well, I mean, that, maybe not hard for you, but I mean... There, there aren't that many people who can maintain a compiler. It's a painfully big, complicated piece of uh, software. And so we hired a few people to do that, and we found some customers, initially big companies that were using the software already, and were having problems here and there with it, and they paid us to fix up those problems. And then we found a whole category of people who were building chips, and they wanted this compiler to work with their chips because as they went to sell their chips to people who were building them into networking equipment or toys or whatever, the, they kept hearing requests like, well, does it work with the GNU compilers? And so they couldn't land a big order from, from some big companies unless they made it work with our compilers. And so they'd pay us to do that. And they'd pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. So... Uh, Giving it away was a good thing. Yeah, and the most interesting part of the whole experience is every company we went into was sales guys to, to try to sell them on the idea that they should use our tools and pay us and we'd support them and all of that. They already had a copy of our tools. They already were using them. Right? It made it a much easier sales job to have the tools precede us. And that created value for our company. And ultimately, ten years after 10 years of hard work, we sold the company to Red Hat for $600 million. Something for nothing. And they're still making money with it. <laughs> So, whereas if we had started a company that sold its software in the usual way, we would never have been worth that much money. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this town who still do not understand this principle. The, the record industry has actually, you know, had so much of this not nose beat on them at this point that they're starting to get it. But, you know, they can't help it now. The movie industry is next. And I think we'll suffer similar results. The advertising industry is after that. You know, there are going to be a lot of there are going to be a lot of folks that are making a lot of money that are suddenly not going to be making money the same way anymore. And they're going to be fighting hammer and tong to maintain their old business models. Right. Well, so part of the reason I actually started this business was because I had been following the nanotechnology crowd for ten or fifteen years. And they were telling us that someday, they couldn't say exactly when, but someday in the foreseeable future, we were going to be able to reproduce physical objects the same way that we can reproduce bits today. And you could basically take a design of a laptop or a pen or a house or a table and have some kind of tiny molecular machines build it up for you the way a tree grows out of a seed. And that was going to make it really hard to make a living by handcrafting tables and laptops and pens and things, because people would just grow it for themselves. Not to mention the fact that you've got people out there owning genetic code or claiming to own genetic code. Yeah, but so, so on the off chance that these people were right about nanotech, I decided to see if I could start a company that could actually give away all of its intellectual property and make money. And it turned out it wasn't that hard. It just wasn't that hard. It also surprised me that almost nobody wanted to compete with us. <laughs> oh, 
that's crazy. That will never work. Exactly. Because I had made a little money from an earlier job, people kind of assumed that I was just supporting the company. You know, it was not profitable, and you know, it was just going to burn up all its money and go away. It's like we started that company on $15,000, and it was profitable from three months in. And we ran it on revenues from customers throughout the rest of its time. Um, but the only competition we ever found was this one little consulting company in Switzerland. We called our company Cygnus, like Cygnus the Swan, um, and they called their company Signum, <laughs> and offered the same kind of services. But they were only two guys, and they didn't really know much about what they were doing. So, you know, we, we grew, before we sold the company, we had about 120 employees, just gradually growing over the years. Um, but the idea that you could make money this way was just so against the grain of everything they taught you in business school and everything they taught you in, uh, in lawyer school that uh, anyone who thought about competing with us just instantly rejected the idea, which was great for us. But, you know, these are just some of the issues that we've had to deal with. And if, you know, those of you who have computers open, if you go to the EFF homepage and just read the list of the things that we are presently engaged in, you know, we are suing, we've got a class action suit going against AT&T for abrogating their customer agreements by allowing the NSA to gain access to their systems and thereby your information and your phone calls. Uh, we are dealing with electronic voting in a, in a significant way. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with online, you know, sl spamming and, and, and slander. Uh, we're dealing with bloggers' rights against, uh, you know, bloggers we feel are journalists and should have the same, the same rights as any other journalist uh, from having their notes being uh, confiscated under, under warrant from the, from the government. We're, uh, we're suing uh, for more information on electronic surveillance systems. We're defending TiVo. We're trying to preserve an, on an anonymity for online embroidery fans. I mean, it gets it gets complicated. I, I mean, we were we actually we had to sue Barney at one point, uh, which I was really in favor of. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, so so they can read about that. Yeah, they can, on the they, they can read. About what do you guys want to hear about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, since you got this smorgasbord of, of things that we can, now, that's that's the questions. end of the broadcast. Well, I want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Join EFF. And we don't promise that the answer to some, one of these questions may not take another 20 minutes. But. Yeah. Can you talk about what happened with you and the TSA? Oh, what happened with me and the TSA? Sure. That's, that's not, in, not much of an EFF thing, but I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I've been working on identity issues. And in particular, I've been working on whether or not we can continue to exercise all of our rights and responsibilities in society without the government requiring us to get an ID card and show it on demand. It's the sort of national ID, your papers please kind of thing that 
when I went to elementary school, they told us that that was how totalitarian <coughs> societies worked. Yeah, I, I remember being a kid, and they'd say, you know, why in the Soviet Union you got to have a passport just to travel around inside the country? And I thought, God, that must be awful. Yep. <coughs> well, but, but so, that's where we are. So I uh, let my driver's license expire and stopped driving, and. Uh, I'd love to have the Angelinos in the room. I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> I live in San Francisco, so we actually have transit that works. Um, and he's very patient with the transit. <laughs> <laughs> Following him around on his own terms is really just a terrible pain. <laughs> but what I discovered is that uh, we don't have the right to move around our own country without ID. And that besides trying to convince people of that, that the government had actually done this in the, in the airports with kind of a subterfuge. In the, in the train stations, they are totally upfront about it. It's like, you show that ID, or you use a credit card that will tie your identity into the system, or you cannot buy a ticket. But the airlines, you know, they were, they were a little bit more subtle. They put signs up all over the airports that says, you know, must show ID. But they never actually passed a law that said you had to. And they never uh, published a regulation that said you had to. They just kind of, you know, put up signs and had the guards start enforcing it. And so this made it a little cumbersome to sue them over it because we couldn't read the text of the rule. Right. And... So indeed, the, when I, I did sue them over it, I tried to fly to Washington, D.C. and not uh, have an ID, and they said, no, you can't do that. And I sued them. And the judge in the district court said, uh, actually asked the, uh, the lawyer for the government, so, uh, so what's, the, what's the law here? And he says, oh, the law is you can't bring a weapon onto an airplane, and you, you know, you can't make threats and this sort of thing. And she said, yeah, yeah, I heard all that. So what's the law about ID? And he said, well, uh, he alleges that we have a rule about it, but uh, so, so you have to assume for purposes of the case that there is such a rule. <laughs> well, and in fact, they have now, I mean, since the passage of the Patriot Act, there are a great many rules that you don't have access to. I mean, I, I got myself into a, into a problem with the TSA. Now, no, that uh, that was an interesting case, and uh, and our lawyers got involved in it. Can you repeat the question? Sure. Wasn't there a case a few years ago where this guy got busted for failure to show an ID, and the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, you do have to." The guy's name is. Dudley Heibel, he lives in Winnemucca, Nevada. And he's a cussed man. He's a rancher along the lines of a John Perry Barlow. Well, it's kind of a smaller spread, but similar attitude. He got pulled over as his son was drunk driving or something, and he had to be in the car, and he didn't have to be in the car. He actually had pulled over, and he was having an argument with his daughter. Well, actually, she had been driving. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, that's right. She, precisely, she'd been driving. She was driving. They were arguing about her boyfriend. And These things happen, I, I can tell you. And 
they pulled over, kind of in a huff, and he got out to have a cigarette and calm things down. And, uh, but some nosy neighbor had uh, seen them arguing in the car and phoned up the cops and said, you know, there's somebody you know, beating on their kid or something. And, uh, and so the cop came screaming up. And uh, we actually have the video <coughs> from the cop car. They had a, they had a, a video, video on the dashboard of the cop car. It took a little extra processing to be able to hear <laughs> the voices out of it, but you can see the whole thing pretty well. And the cop came up. Um, the guy's just standing around outside his truck smoking a cigarette. Came up and basically said, I need to see some ID. And Heibel said, you know, what did I do? What's the charge? He says, I need to see some ID. And they go around four or five times on this. And Heibel eventually, uh, you know, says, well, no. You know, I know my rights. Yeah, I don't have to show you any ID. And the cop arrests him, throws him in the back of the truck, and then goes after the daughter and drags her out of the truck and throws her on the ground and stuff like that. And then the, then the video cuts off. Um, and they, they prosecuted him. He had a public defender. And uh, I think they lost in the, in the lowest courts. And, and they worked their way up. The Nevada Supreme Court, and so the law had said, okay, well, let's see, to go back. The Supreme Court had ruled earlier that you didn't have to show any kind of ID. This was a case about a guy who had been loitering. You know, cops love to sort of run around to people who they claim are loitering and say, you know, we need to see who you are and, and you need to account for yourself. And this was a black guy with hair down to his ass who liked to wear these white ice cream suits and walk around in white neighborhoods. And, and the CHP busted him like 25 times over two years, and he eventually sued them, and he won in the Supreme Court. He said... For walking around on the street, you don't need an ID. You don't need nothing. They can't harass you this way. So Larry Heibel, Dudley Heibel, thought that was the rule. But the Nevada legislature had passed a law that pushed the envelope a little bit. It said, well, you don't need to show an ID except unless a cop suspects you of a crime in, in which case, and, and you, are, you are being detained for that. And in that case, you have to identify yourself, is what they said. And the Nevada Supreme Court eventually looked at that in this case, and they interpreted that law to mean not that you had to show an ID card, but that you just had to give your name. Um, so the... Uh, case ended up getting appealed from the Nevada Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court, and when the U.S. Supreme Court took it, we discovered the case, and a bunch of people discovered the case, and all kinds of people came in on both sides, cops coming in saying, you know, we need to check up on people, and um, civil liberties people coming in and saying, you can't compel someone to speak, you know, to incriminate themselves, and you can't search them without suspicion of a crime, and all this other stuff. And uh, so we got involved. Ultimately, what the Supreme Court decided was that if you are suspected of a crime, if you're in a, what they call a Terry stop, if a cop has a reasonable suspicion that you've committed or are about to commit a crime, 
they can detain you briefly. They can't move you except like out of the traffic. But they can detain you in one place and they can ask you questions which you aren't obligated to answer. Um, but in a state that has required you to give your name, they can make you give your name. Now, as far as I know, only one state has done that, which is Nevada. And the curious wrinkle in all of this is the cop never asked for his name. No, he just asked for ID. He asked for a document. He asked for a document, a document, a document, which he never had the right to get. But, of course, the way this was reported was that cops can make you show an ID. But this is almost not an EFF case. I mean, we were we, right. we, we used, you know, some of our resources on it. But. Why don't you talk about the two cases that are most interesting to you right now that EFF is Well, obviously our biggest case, you know, the one that is that is drawing the most attention, both among us and elsewhere, is and in the government is yeah, and the government uh, is the AT and T case. I mean, we. We realized that given the current legal climate, suing the NSA was going to be kind of an uphill battle. <laughs> and besides, ACLU was doing that. Right. Well, you know, but we, decided, we, we figured we had more leverage elsewhere. We decided to open a new front. Right. And so the law that makes it a crime for NSA to be wiretapping people in the United States without any warrants also makes it a crime for a telephone company to wiretap people, its own customers, perhaps. In fact, it makes it a crime for you to wiretap people in the United States without a warrant. And so we went after AT&T for building this infrastructure to wiretap their people yeah. and handing off the... Actually, what we particularly are complaining about is, uh, is that... They built an infrastructure, they built a room in their central offices and just let the NSA put any kind of equipment in there that they wanted. And then they fed, uh, they put splitters on their fiber optic lines and fed those lines into that room. That, we believe, is the crime, right? It's, it's irrelevant what the government did after that. The government didn't even have to listen to any of it. The crime is in delivering your phone calls to the government. Unfortunately, we, we, had the, we had the luck of running across the fellow in San Francisco who'd been running that room, who had just retired from AT&T and had never been comfortable with, with this arrangement. He, he hadn't been running it, actually. He was a, he was a fiber optic installer. And uh, stand, so he had watched this whole thing happen without actually doing it. And he had talked to other installers in other cities. And so he knew that this was happening, at least by hearsay, in like six or eight other cities. But he had seen it happen in San Francisco. And as we were, you know, reading the New York Times article about the wiretapping and puzzling what we should do over this, he literally walked into our offices and said, you know, I've got some information and some documents about this wiretapping. He did the whistleblower thing. That yes. was my question. Do you engage in some of your own investigative work or... Um we do we do a lot of investigation but it's it's actually of a, a much nerdier sort I mean this is why we had we had Corey and we, we've got a, a whole set of uber nerds uh, you know, 
Well, EFF has done some very good original investigation that used EFF supporters to help with it, like right. the like the laser printer dots. Right. Um, where John had heard a... Well, John, do you want to tell the story? Sure. I mean, I had heard years ago that that Xerox had done something funny to the color Xerox machines, that they would print something in every page that showed who had printed it and when. And... Uh, you know, and I just sort of heard that. There was no way to confirm it, and so I filed it away and thought about it. And I heard this later uh, about color laser printers, that not only Xerox but Canon, once they started making color print engines, and everybody put those print engines into their printers, whatever brand they were. And I tried to stir up the tech people at EFF to kind of, okay, let's reverse engineer this. Let's figure this out. We filed FOIA requests asking about it, and we got nothing back. We asked out, you know, we sort of trolled around with Google and found as much info as there was on the net. And we did find a couple of places where Xerox had admitted to doing this. And they gave the reason as deterring counterfeiting. Right. Making it, because, you know, it's a reasonable concern on the part of the government that by the time you've got copiers that you can just stick a $20 bill in, and out comes a replica of a $20 bill that, you know, they might be concerned with retaining the value of the currency. But unfortunately, it's the kind of technology that can be used for a lot of things. You know, right. If, if, you've, if you've got, you know, an, extre- an extremely zealous government, which we seem to be, well, it, fortunately, I think we may be backing away from it now, but it looked to me like we were developing the kind of government in this country that would be perfectly capable of taking a look at, at pieces of paper and finding out who had printed on them if they didn't like what was printed. Mm-hmm. So, we, so. Have, we, we have an uber nerd on Seth, staff. Seth Sean. Seth Sean. Who is our speaker next week. And, it, and, it, <laughs> and, and, and he's actually quite capable of speaking, you know, two weeks, intel, two weeks. intelligible ah. English. Right. A lot so, of the time he just talks in, you know, things that are so very difficult for him. So a little bit. <laughs> he came up with a, a test thing that people could print out on their color laser printers uh, that you could download and, uh, and then mail it to us. And a couple of hundred people did this, printed about six pages or whatever, and we started looking at the output, looking to see if we could notice patterns in it. And what we discovered was that there were these really faint yellow dots being printed in patterns across the page. And that if you took um, a blue light and shined it on the page, you could, um, the, the yellow dots would look black and you could see them a whole lot better. You're kind of raising the contrast. So you kind of shine the thing and you'd start picking up these patterns. And... By comparing the uh, serial numbers of the printers that people had sent in and the dates and times and things, we sort of decoded for at least one brand of printer what they were printing, and, and we discovered this rumor is really true. And we've seen lots of dots on other models that we haven't yet decoded yet. We're still interested in people who want to help with that. But we published the results just to warn people. It's like if you're going to print out political flyers you had better know that those can be tracked back to the serial number of your printer. And if you've gone down to, like, Office Depot to buy a printer, you know they would really prefer that you buy it with a credit card. 
They so, will take cash if you if you ask nicely, you know. But they really prefer to get all that information, and it's all correlated right on the sales slip with the serial number. But there there are you know a long long list of these kinds of things that are that are really kind of unlikely to to surface in you know public awareness. And in fact, even after they surface in our awareness, trying to get the public to know what we're talking about is very difficult. I mean, when we were fighting over encryption, which I think was enormously important, it just what a conversation stopper it is, is if you try to sit down and have a conversation with somebody about computer encryption and why that's important. I mean, they would, you know, they'll have to go get a drink or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so this was an example, and we see it so many, so many times. The, uh, the Secret Service reaction to counterfeiting with laser printers was to just embed some information in every output of every printer that would be useful for them in doing their jobs without ever looking at the impact on the rest of society. Right. right? Here we have another example. It's uh, currently in process. It's the RFID passport. Um, the State Department has decided that they would really prefer that when you're standing in line at the airport, you know, waiting to go through immigration, that they be able to rapidly read your passport while you're in line and sort of look you up in the database. And then by the time you get up to the front, you know, they'll already have... They've got the handcuffs out and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Or not. Cool. They'll process you right on through. But uh, so they designed this whole scheme to put a chip into the, into the passport cover. Pass this around. Whose passport is that? Well, that one this is... is a, this is, is a, a mock-up. It's a manufacturer's sample from a company that makes these uh, passports. But you'll, you'll get your own. Yeah, they, they are actually issuing them now. If you, if you renew your U.S. passport... Um, if you, uh, Ed Hasbrook has been tracking this. He uh, uh, writes uh, things under the name The Practical Nomad, and he has some advice online about if you want to renew your passport and get a non-chipped one, how to do it, because some of the passport centers are issuing chipped passports and some of them aren't at this point in the United this, States. Uh, fail in Britain like they tried to do it last year? Um, some countries have already issued passports like this, and some European countries have. I don't know if Britain is one of them yet. But, again, it's an agency that was trying to solve their little problem of checking you when you're in their particular line. But they, they gave you a document that you have to use all over the world for all sorts of things, check into every hotel you go to, to show to airlines and, and everybody else. And worse than that, Great this, way to track you. This chip everywhere is readable by people feet away from you without you ever knowing it. And what they will get is all the info that's on your passport. <coughs> it's like the name, you know, the birth date, the passport number, your country, your picture, all of that stuff is encoded on this chip. And at least the way they had initially announced they were going to roll it out, all that stuff was in, in clear text. Exactly. I mean, it's even a great way to figure out who to overcharge in a taxi overseas. <laughs> it's really 
Uh, but again, yeah, go ahead. Is that kind of the same I don't know about that. The same thing in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. Um, there's, there's like this whole new breed of credit cards that major credit card companies are now selling um, that are like scanless, so that mm. you don't have to swipe them, mm-hmm. and they're faster allegedly. But anyone can can read them, can put them put together like something and read them if they're being sent to people in the mail, and it gets all your information. Right. Well, the passport thing is just a, just a subset of the problems with RFID. It turns out that major consumer product makers and, uh, and a couple of major distribution chains like Walmart have been trying to, to mark consumer products with RFIDs. Um, libraries have been putting them in their books, putting, putting an RFID chip in every book such that the, it's real easy to check you in and out because they just sort of scan it. Um, we discovered in San Francisco it was virtually impossible to adopt a pet that didn't have an RFID chip embedded under its skin. We ended up having to find some uh, Mexican family that had just had a litter of cats. You know, that hadn't even, you know... Considered putting in a chip. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, they're not born with chips in them yet. <laughs> they're working on that. Uh huh. But it is hard to adopt a pedophile here in California now for the same reason. <laughs> can, you, can you say a little about about um, <laughs> about the the uh, whether or not you're anonymous when you have one of these when you have these these chips? You know, what is it about having a library book and a pet and so on that have these chips and then that compromises your anonymity? Well, let's go with the, I mean, start with the passport, right? If you're carrying the passport around, then, then people can identify you. Then, and more, more, than, more than people, machines can identify you. So they can put up a video camera that's taking pictures of everyone that goes by and also scanning their, their passports and tying that back to who you are, right? If, if they uh, put the chips in your clothing... Right, then, then they might not know who you are, but they'll know that the same guy passed by. Right. I mean, increasingly, we've, we're setting up this matrix for, for a broad variety of generally practical and not necessarily bad reasons one at a time. For surveillance. Where, where we are, just in the course of leading contemporary lives, going around leaving this digital slime trail... <laughs> That can be rolled up into a perfect simulacrum of us by any number of institutions or entities, some of whom may not be benign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's, you know, certainly many of these entities don't need warrants to, in fact, the government doesn't seem to need warrants anymore either, uh, to, to use that information in ways that you may find, you know, makes it harder for you to operate. Uh, so, so here's a court case thing EFF has been doing. We've now gone through more than half a dozen cases where the federal government was applying to a magistrate judge, kind of a lower-level judge in federal court, to 
get an order to wiretap someone's cell phone location. That is, they're not going to listen in on the calls. They're just going to be told by the phone company in real time where that person is and everywhere they go. And the government has been arguing, okay, so first, first thing to know is the government never applies for these in open court. Right? They always apply for them in secret so they don't tip off the guy who they're trying to track. The second thing to know is that the judges issue their opinions in secret. Either they grant the thing or they don't, but the public never finds out, at least not till way later in a court case, if the guy eventually gets arrested. Well, one judge, about a year, year and a half ago, issued a published opinion in which he turned them down for such an order, and he published his opinion and said, you know, I've issued a bunch of these orders in the past, but I started to read up on this, and I'm concerned that they're asking for something that's illegal. <coughs> and and, uh, and he, uh, he decided to stir up some controversy with it by publishing it to see, and he kept out the name of the person they were trying to track and stuff, but he tried to stir up the legal community to think about this. And we thought about it, and we wrote him a letter that said, uh, we're very interested in this topic. We helped helped to craft the last uh, law about wiretapping. And and we think that you're right, that it is, that that specifically you need a warrant to get somebody's location out of their cell phone. You can't just go around to a magistrate and say, I'm interested in this person, therefore order the phone company to tell me where he is. But, the, but part of the problem is that under the Patriot Act, any database, whether it's a hospital database, a library database, a credit card database, can now be taken by the federal government with what amounts to the same kind of rubber stamp warrant. Non-warrant. Or non-warrant. Order. Yeah, or order. Yeah. Can now be taken from any institution. And in fact, if the person who hands that database over informs anyone that this has taken place, he is guilty of a felony for having revealed it. Which, you know, gives the government the right to get all kinds. I mean, I, I used to feel fairly sanguine about, you know, the amount of information that I was tossing to, toward commercial enterprises. I thought it made my life more convenient in some respects. And I'm in favor of, of companies knowing as much as possible about consumers so they can make better products. But now it's a different matter, because now that's all government data, ipso facto. And that's, that's troublesome. Is it known if cell phone companies are purging this data, or are they saving indefinitely? It is not known. Um, does the con- do you have a contract with your cell phone company, and what does it say about this? I bet it doesn't say anything. And in the absence of an agreement with you, they can do what they want. Do you, do you yeah. think that- I have a- a lot of friends that have considered um, joining this the new program in San Jose, and this will be done in Boston Airport as well, where you can sign up for the rapid network. trusted traveler. The trusted traveler. <laughs> so, uh, sounds like a scary idea to me, but it'd be interesting for me to hear from you what you what you feel the risks are. So I can pass them on to my colleagues. Well. Um, <laughs> He doesn't get on airplanes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the 
trusted traveler program, the idea is you can skip some of the security in airports if they have vetted you in advance. And then if you use some biometric to prove who you are, like a fingerprints or retina prints or something like that. Um, they haven't been very popular yet because they don't actually bypass very much of security. Right. Um, so they don't really gain you that much, and, they, and it's X amount of hassle. But the, I think the biggest danger in these programs is, the, is, is if they become mandatory. And so the idea is, oh, you start them off as, a, as an optional thing that the business travelers will use, and, uh, and then as more and more people divert into there, you reduce the number of lines that other ordinary people can go through until eventually, if you can't, if you can't get one of these cards, you can't travel at all. Personally, I can't wait to become one, to tell you the truth. I mean, I flew 270,000 miles last year. and I well, go for I, it. I, I, I'm going to. Okay. But but I don't care about but, but I don't personally care about my privacy. I mean, but presumably, somebody who really wants to do major harm might have the resources to get one of these as well. So it's not. I don't even think it really is makes me feel more secure. I mean, it, well, it's it not good from a security standpoint, really. It's not. It's not any good from a security standpoint, as far as I can tell. Um, but what it's good for is is it's good from an authoritarian standpoint because the way it works is. You have no right to any of these kind of cards, the way you have a right to travel, right to move around in your own country. Um, so the, the way it works is you apply for the privilege of having the card. And to get it, you have to send them you know, six forms of ID and fill out your life history, and they'll do a criminal records check on you, and fingerprints and eye scans and all of that kind of stuff. And then they'll sit on it for six weeks or two months or whatever, and then they'll decide. And if they give you one, then you'll have one. But and if they don't, you have no recourse. It's, it's and pretty, they won't tell you why, and there's nothing you can fix. It's pretty likely that Tim McVeigh could have gotten one. Yeah. Right. I would say. But you don't think there's actually much of a risk to the fly and be, go through all that background screening, because they could probably do that anyway, or... Well, well I mean, it depends I, on whether or not you're a terrorist, I guess. Uh, I don't but know. See, I, I mean, the problem is that... We don't know that that's all they're checking for. I mean, you know, there, there's also the Patriot Act has, has given them a great opportunity to start routinely checking bags for, you know, instruments of terror. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing is they, they find other stuff, you know, and, and once they find that other stuff, you know, well, geez, you know, they're not just going to close the bag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this, this beautiful net that they've created. That they can, you know, they, they can filter the entire flying public through now. That they for check. all, for safety and security. Right. But somehow, if you have some contraband with you that provides no danger of safety and security, then somehow they'll charge you with it anyway. And somehow the courts think it's okay that they searched you without suspicion and, because you were in an airport. And you, and what and, did you expect? And you cannot find out whether or not there's a directive that actually uh, is orders them to search orders for them for search for to, to search for drugs and other things because all of those procedures are secret are completely secret yeah so personally i don't believe the government has the right or the ability to demand that i identify them myself before i can go through an airport and so i wouldn't 
buy into a system that purports to have the government decide who's allowed to go through the airport by giving or not giving you a card. That's a philosophical point of view as opposed to a risk assessment point of view. Well, if you want to think of it in risk assessment, how much do you trust your government? Okay? Well, if you trust your government, be happy about giving them as much information about you as you like. If you don't trust your government, think twice. I think there actually is is reason to trust the government mostly on this account. I mean, I, I do consulting for some of the, you know, spookier parts of the government, and they are completely incompetent in there. <laughs> it's astonishing. I mean, they, they are so good at they are so good at gathering data, and they the, the more data they gather, the less capable they are of turning them into information. But this was the problem with the Bush administration. You got some people who were capable instead of incompetent in there, and look at what they did. <sighs> yeah, that's true. Do we know? Do you gentlemen have any information on what causes you to be put on a no uh, no fly list? And the second part to that There is no such thing as a no-fly list. <laughs> but there's records. I mean, there's cases where people walk up and they're told that they can't fly. Like Teddy Kennedy, for one. Cat Stevens. Or Mohammed, whatever he is. Uh. No, I was just kidding. No, I mean... And then there is a no-fly list, but you're not allowed but, to know about but it. Yeah, exactly. There is not an official no-fly list. Uh, it has not been published. Its criteria have not been published. It's all secret. Well, and, and think about this. Bruce Schneier actually sat on a, a government review committee that looked at the secrecy of this stuff. And he said, this is a list of people so dangerous that we can't allow them to be just an ordinary passenger on an airplane, even after we've searched them, but so innocent that we can't arrest them for anything because they haven't committed any crime. Well, unless you count Teddy Kennedy. <laughs> There's a disconnect there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can say that the government can't write a law that doesn't allow you to get on an airplane without showing ID, but couldn't the airlines require you to show ID? And, you know, this is, you say, you know, commercial enterprise wants to know about their customer. If I'm an airline, I can say maybe I'm not going to let you on my airplane unless you have who you are. Is that about the same thing? Well, that's kind of the dodge that the airlines, are, you know, the government is getting the airlines to take. They have been, they have been trying, you know, to do that past the buck thing. Yeah. But the, several airlines actually did try to impose ID requirements back in the early 90s because they were mad that people were, if, if they weren't going to use a plane ticket they had bought, they would resell it to somebody else. And... Uh, they said, well, we'll just make people show ID and then we'll catch those people. And what they discovered was that travelers switched to other airlines when they imposed an ID requirement. That the public did not like this. And, of course, the airlines, so, so, so they really couldn't do it. They tried several times until they found a way to get the government to order every airline to do it, and then you had nowhere to go. And, and the airlines love it because now they can charge you a hundred bucks or that's up to 150 now I don't know to change your ticket when otherwise you just could have sold it to somebody so is the is the next step that I want to change chips with my cat I mean is, you know, not a bad <laughs> idea <laughs> you know oh, oh you mean you put his I'll chip in you and yeah this could be an, this could be an <laughs> incredible <laughs> shell game I mean <laughs> I, I like that idea. <laughs> 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 I 
I think it's a great idea. Try it out. <laughs> Your door will open when you come up to it. <laughs> I mean, rather than get the passport from the wrong place, which might not let me through, I might just want... Mm-hmm. I don't know what we do. You know, we can enter. You, you can not fly. We can decide to use all cash. I mean, it seems like there's a sort of mischief on another level. That there are lots of opportunities here for uh, for hacking the system and seeing how it responds. Indeed, and raising awareness. Yeah. Well, and, and, and ultimately, I think it's the raising awareness. I mean, we are going into this state. And I, you know, I personally am of the conviction that they're, you know, that we are headed toward a society which is going to be completely transparent. And I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. I mean, I was raised in a small town in Wyoming where everybody knew everything anyway. Uh, but we had the absolution of familiarity and mutually assured destruction. I mean, somebody wanted to rattle my skeletons. I knew where their bodies were buried. And, and by this means, we tend to leave each other alone in spite of knowing everything. It's different when you've got large secretive institutions that know everything about you, and you don't know anything about them. It's also different when you have people that you've never met and never will meet who know everything about you. And, and are making and, decisions and about are making, you and, and, that you and can't making, even find out Making about. moral decisions about your behavior based on their own personal system of morality that you know, may be much more rigid than yours. And your incorrect database entries which you can't correct because you can't even see. But, I mean, eventually, you know, I, I, I assume that we are going to find ourselves in a society that is adapted to this by becoming, you know, per, first of all, a lot more transparent on all levels, both institutionally and personally, and also more tolerant because we're not going to be able to handle it if we don't become more tolerant. So, Barlow, I want to push back a little on this because we, we've been talking about this off and on today. And I'm skeptical. I think that it's that there's, you're talking about two different kinds of transparency: transparency for institutions and powerful individuals who, who who wield a lot of power, and transparency for the powerless. And as though the two necessarily accompany one another, but I think it's co- perfectly conceivable that we could have one without the other. Oh, absolutely. And I think the brass ring would be to shoot for transparency for the powerful. Privacy for the powerless. Well, that's why that's one of the reasons why we were so adamant about cryptography, because we felt like in order in order for there to be a parody, we had to start out with a parody. We had to we had to have a we had to have the same level of privacy for the individual that the government had for its for itself. And, and you know, At then then you're in a better bargaining position. Then you can start to de escalate, you know, it's kind of like the salt talks during the during the Cold War, you can start to de-escalate on both sides. Hmm. So I mean, this is kind of a, like in LA. I've kind of been enjoying watching the cops get on YouTube while they're beating somebody up. And I guess at the same level, I recognize that there's a certain that transparency is there, but there's a decoupling of the power that they have as a result. Um, do you feel as though everybody should be walking with video cameras? I mean, well, you, at the moment, everybody is. Yes. I mean, really bad video cameras and your cell phones, but I guess they're going to get much better. For me is if more of us work for the government, I mean, like if I spend time in Scandinavia, a lot of people say, well, as a government worker, I shouldn't. Those are also private individuals. So that transparent society gets a weird. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there's the problem of little brother. You know, and, and little brother watching you all the time. <laughs> 
on, I was just shown a great example of Little Brother here. At USC, there's a project um, that Adam Powell showed me today. And he was very excited about it without a trace of concern, right? No, he, he had some concern. Actually, he, he said they've gathered a year's worth of data he's, he's off the all room. the video cameras. He was in the room. He had to go, he had to go yeah. Um, a year's worth of data of all the video cameras on campus that's all sitting on hard drives somewhere that they can map into uh, satellite pictures and show you who was walking around, who was driving through campus. He said they, uh, they put this info up very briefly after demoing this thing, and then they took it back down again. And they're, they're trying to figure out the social and privacy implications of this. He said he's gotten requests from campus security to, like, you know, show me what was going on on this street at 4 a.m. on this day, and he's turned them down. But if somebody came with a warrant, you know, he'd have to show it. You know, if, if you believe in David Brin's theory on this, the transparent society, the thing to do would be to put that information and all that software up for free public access. Right that if the elite is going to be able to spy on all of us, then we all ought to be able to spy on all of us. Yeah, it would be good to know where all the campus cops were at any given moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if, if the Secretary of Defense can know where I'm going as I go out and visit my friend and go out to a bar and have a drink and wander on home, I should be able to know where he's going. Seems fair. Yeah, because the only way... You equalize that power is by equalizing it, right? If information is power, then the public needs to have more of it than the government, or the or the public will not be able to control the government. Yeah, so in the we've had packet switching and anarchists mentioned in the same breath. Now we're talking about you know the, the government and not being able to control. We'll talk about China controlling part of the internet and not all of it. In this digital future, is there kind of an inevitability of the undermining of the current concept of the nation-state? I think that's... I think the nation-state is actually uh, damn near gone in, in many respects. I mean, the United States of America is, you know, the nation-state that seems to be most determined to preserve that notion, but it, you know, it's also determined to pres preserve the notion that that everything in the world is part of the United States of America. I mean, clear back in the Clinton administration when we were arguing about, you know, the, the, the functional borders of, of uh, copyright and cryptography, I said, where exactly do the, do the boundaries, I was in the White House, and I said, where exactly do you think the boundaries of this country now lie? And the, the staffer, who at that point was the president's chief of staff, said, we don't find that to be a very convenient question to ask around here. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, but the nation state is, I think the nation state's been on decline for a while. I mean, it's something that rose up uh, to support the industrial period. I mean, it was, it was about defining an economic zone that was big enough to, to support, uh, you know, standard of, of, of industrial production. And, you know, common monetary standards and railroad track standards and that kind of thing. And it, 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 well, I think I actually look to see a major comeback for the city-state. You know, I mean, I think the city-state is going to have the biggest renaissance since the renaissance. 
Well, the United States does show signs of being too big a country in the sense that we don't know the people in the government and they don't know us, right? right. In most countries are a lot smaller, either in population or in physical size, to the point where if you want to talk to the Minister of the Interior about X, you can actually schedule an appointment and go over and talk to him. Right. And this country has just gotten, uh, you know, over 200 years physically so big and uh, so complicated and, and encrusted that you know, nobody wants to talk to you. You're just a citizen. You know, you're supposed to take orders. Citizen oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the trend, and this, you know, has been commented by a lot of folks, but, I mean, the trend seems to be what they call globalization, you know, heading out toward the global and the local at the same time, uh, you know, and, and, you know, emptying out the nation state in the middle. Because, you know, part of what nation states were for was conducting war. Well, And we don't do that you know, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. I mean, we, we have these, these like... We have these SWAT teams the size of armies that go and try to produce police actions in other countries. But, you know, war, to my way of thinking, is where you really get at it, you know, Uh, like World War II or something like that. Well, with the invention of nuclear weapons, that's no longer practical. That's not a possibility. You can't do that anymore. So, I mean, war is obsolete in that sense. And I think it's probably going to dawn on us fairly soon that it's obsolete, you know, even when we decide we're going to go up and beat up on some pipsqueak nation. Because it turns out that they will, you know, kick our asses sooner or later. They, they have the last several times we tried it. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think nation states are evolving. It, it's been really interesting for me to see more of the world in my life because... Growing up in the United States, well, I, I hear growing up in every country, they tell you it's the best country on earth. You know, we've got the best mountains and we've got the best cities and we've got the best people. But we mean it here. <laughs> right. Um, so, so just getting yourself out of that uh, reality distortion field, you know, can do a lot for, your, for, for figuring out what's really happening. So one of the things that's really happening is, for example, that border controls are generally going down. Yeah. Right? That uh, you can take trains all over Europe and they don't even look at your passports. Yeah, you travel right? in Europe, you don't know when you've crossed the border I mean, anymore. it still feels like, you know, getting in or out of a prison camp to go in and out of the United States, and that's been getting worse. But that's because, you know, we are becoming, um, you know, we, we looked into the Soviet abyss for too long and we have become it. Exactly. <coughs> yeah. We talked about a lot of potential uh, future outcomes, and some of them are pretty scary. Uh, where, where do you see that we are? Are we standing at the precipice of this horrible uh, future where we created the infrastructure for a government to become totalitarian? Is the EFF and other groups like you able to provide counterweight? What, what do you see this the, the cool thing about the internet and, and the reason that you know the, the EFF exists is that the internet has contained within it 
the capacity to be the most liberating thing that's ever happened to humanity and at the same time the world's greatest surveillance tool. Uh, I, know, I think the most liberating thing was the pill, actually. <laughs> yeah, that didn't last that long. They, they decided they didn't like that. But, uh, but I mean, I'm not you know, just talking it, no, it, about it, sex, but, but population but, but control really, too. You know, I, I this is probably uh, you know I'm, I have I've been called a pronoid by people, and I'm you know pleased to be called one. You know, somebody who thinks the universe is a conspiracy on your behalf, and I I'm reasonably sunny about the future in spite of all the gloomy things that one can say in this context or, or numerous others because I think that if you get all of humanity working in some kind of you know much more informed condition you know working together and, and creating a nervous system for the planet so that we actually know what's going on everywhere collectively we could make and, the leap to nerdvana <laughs> kind of like, but I mean, we you know we we might actually become a slightly more conscious uh, species. I mean, I, I feel that that's very likely true. But you know, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of uh, shoals and narrows to pass through on the way. I guess I, you know I kind of feel similarly that the, I mean the, the internet has been a disruptive technology in the in the classic sense. You know, it's gone in and messed up a bunch of assumptions that people had. And the result is things can get better or things can get worse. And EFF is about 25 people. I mean, how can 25 people really change the world? Well, when there's a lot of flux, when you're at a cusp, when you can actually see you know, that a decision made here can make things go this way or that way or that way, you know, if you're at the beginning of a journey, you can help to pick a direction. Yeah. And... You know, the 25 people at EFF or the 50 people in this room could end up making some of the choices that make the world better or worse. We're, we're still... So we're know, trying. We're, we're just like five butterfly wing beats past, you know, the first, you know, the butterfly that, that starts the thunderstorm. I mean, this is really early still. You know, I mean, you are... Everybody here is a pioneer still in this regard. And... You know, you do not think that, that this is all over by any means. Because just the stuff that, that John and I have found ourselves dealing with in the last two or three years, that, you know, decisions that get made that, that we can have some influence over that are important decisions in terms of how things go from this point forward. I mean, we've, we've had a long uh, dispute with, with Intel and, and Microsoft, uh, or and actually a number of different groups in a consortium over what is called trusted computing. How many people in here know about trusted computing? Wonderful thing. It's, it makes How it many of you are in favor of it? Right. Opposed? Yeah. Don't well, know? How about ambivalent? In favor of parts of it and not the rest? Right. Mm -hmm. no, I mean, see, and that's the problem, because there could be some good things about it. But there could be some truly awful things about it, not the least of which is that, you know, uh, if deployed the way in which it was intended to be deployed before we got involved, the, it, it would have made it so that any document that passed through your computer would be marked as having gone through there. Trackable back to so you. So it would be trackable back to you, to, you know, to solve 
copy, copyright violations, mostly to make sure on Microsoft's behalf that that, uh, that you're not stealing their you're software. You're not stealing their software. There's well, only I mean, six billion if, copies if of it in the world. Everything, you can't make six if everything that passes through every computer is 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 marked with, you know, the identity of the person who had that computer. I mean, it it makes it very easy to to create a, a, a dreadful surveillance system. And this didn't surface on most people's radar because it was too goddamn complicated. Trying to, I mean, just trying to figure out the the uh, the specs of of the right. The 150-page turgid spec right. of what it was supposed to do. Right, which was constantly changing and, and in an environment that was not necessarily open to public discourse. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really important stuff, and it happens all the time. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that I recommend you getting involved in. You see these things surface, and they're everywhere around you. And ask yourself, is this going to make for a more open society or a more closed society? Is this going to make the Internet more open? Or is it going to make it more closed? Is it going to connect people, or is it going to separate them? Is, right. Is it going to give people more control over their lives? Or less. Or give other people more control over right. your life? Uh, on yeah. that, could you comment on the one laptop per child? Because uh, just go, we'll go. You know what it is. Then. Sure, yeah. I think it's a great thing, actually. This is a project that came out of the MIT Media Lab to produce... They, they were shooting for $100 laptops. Their first rev is $140. And they have no hard drives, a really slow processor, an amazing new screen that, you know, costs a quarter of what uh, laptop screens cost and is readable in sunlight. And, and very, very low power such that if, it's, if you can charge it overnight, then a kid can use it all day. There, yeah. yeah, you can, you can well, also in, power in, it by in, hand. In places with no electricity, and you could actually use human or, or animal power to recharge it. It's almost indestructible. I mean, you That's really the theory. Would, it, 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 well, I mean, the, one, the last, the last yeah. one I saw looked like you could throw it all the way across the room against a brick wall and it would you know, take it. Yeah. Well, and so, so they're selling these. The, the idea here is, is to sell these to education bureaucracies in the third world using the money that they would normally spend on textbooks. If they'd spend 20 or $30 a year per kid on textbooks, then have them use four or five years' worth of money and buy that kid a laptop. And they can download the textbooks into the laptop and read them. They also have a, a cool And meanwhile, they can do a, lots of other things. They have, a, they have a mesh network. You know, if you get a bunch of these together, there's a mesh network that automatically creates a local area network uh, without trying to configure it at all. And they, they are also musical instruments. I mean, they have, they have a lot of very cool musical software in them. So you could, you know, I can imagine the 25 laptop band easily. Yep. You know. What's that? Yes, they've, they've added mic and camera to it. Right. But I guess my question is, there's the utopian view, which I subscribe yeah. to, of giving more access to knowledge, uh, making it more hard to control... Right. If you have five million kids in Liberia on the net, it's going to be possibly hard Libya. to Libya. Libya. Libya's it was Gaddafi that went for this. I mean, the yeah. great thing about a dictator is you can just, you know, yeah. to him. But then, you know, there are people who have taken the other, you know, one of our students wrote a long invective saying, well, this is really, this is really cynical. The people who have invested in it wanted more people for eBay, more customers, more games. Customers, uh, local culture will go away. 
Well, you, yeah, well, per, per, first of all, it's a good idea to know the people who are involved. I mean, I, I, I've been peripherally involved, and in, uh, you know, the people who are involved are. I've been more closely they, involved. They could, they could, <laughs> they could care less about that. You yeah, know, quite the opposite. In, in no way, an incentive. The, there are 14 people in the one laptop per child organization. Okay, and you know they they're doing this all with with leverage through partners. I, I think the person who wrote this, and I I agree with you. Okay. Clearly, I'm not agreeing with, with him. I'm just bringing it up as a. Well, I'm glad to talk about it. But I'm it so up for as, one as thing, a, as just a point of conversation in terms of what is this idea of this huge globalization and lose. Is this, how well, do we use this to hold culture as opposed to lose local culture? Well, for one thing... Coming from the small town, I think you can make the point that it's more, it, it enforces, the mesh network enforces the small town, enforces community the, building, you build your Wikipedia and your... There, well, there are languages that were dying, right. there are cultures that were dying, because they had no way of preserving themselves. They didn't have, a, they didn't have enough of a commercial base to produce a publishing industry. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they, they, I mean... All over the planet, languages you know, even as big as Catalan, right? We're, we're in tough shape. Two two thirds and of the languages that the laptop is going to be used in in the first two years were not supported by Linux before they started. Right, right, Khmer, and they're putting that support in, so that, that in Libya they'll be using the thing in Arabic, and in Thailand they'll be using it in Thai. I just think it's an example of a big idea that is actually at this juncture, which really can't be difference. And also, you know, there's another, there's another great, to me, an important part of this, which is that I, I'm a big believer in, in open source. And, and the whole you thing know, this has thing, been done with open this source. thing is open source, and so you, that if the you kids can share, you, they can they can examine it to see how it's right. built. They can take it apart physically and put it back together, so which means they can also learn to repair it. Um, they can update the software in it, and and anything they build in it, they can share with all the other millions of kids that have them. If you so, have... listening to Mary Lou Jepson, who is CTO of the project, she gave a talk about this a couple of days ago that I attended, and she said, "Well, you know, we don't really believe <coughs> too hard in this idea that that." Um, the kids are going to just read all their textbooks on this and all this. What's really going to happen is that the kids are going to explore this on their own, and they're going to learn how to learn, and they're going to learn how to teach each other, and they're going to do things with this that we never even thought of. Couldn't and that is the best kind of education we can give them. Absolutely. And also, I mean, if you got suddenly you have this flood of Linux machines, or basically Linux machines out there uh, in that age group, you know, you're you're able to start dealing with you know creating another another software culture that doesn't automatically enslave itself to Windows. And and they worked very hard to not put any kind of DRM, not put any kind of reporting back on what the users are doing, access controls, all of that kind of stuff is all missing from this deliberately, so I mean that, that it's in, an empowering tool rather than a, uh, a spy tool. It's, it's, but it's, They've got microphones and cameras in them, right? There's going to be a million of them with approximately the same software in it by the end of next year. Uh, if somebody can figure out a way to write a virus that can propagate through that, it can start spying on those kids. 
I mean, it's it's and their es- families, right? It's an especially gentle it's- breeze that blows no ill. I mean, I, <laughs> I cannot imagine that that you know absolutely no harm will come of this, especially given the really pure good intentions of everybody who's involved in creating it. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a dead setup for some kind of disaster. But if I were a totalitarian government, I might not want to buy twenty billion of those from my country. Um, yeah, it totally depends. Well, I think they will. And and, and in Brazil, for example, you realize these are being built. It's going to take Brazil. Brazil, <laughs> Brazil <laughs> is, is going to buy Brazil, Brazilians. Yeah, I mean, Brazil. Brazilians. But Brazil is a country that two years ago spent more on software licensing than it did on fighting hunger inside Brazil. You know, that's just. That's, you mean that's beyond wrong. The government or the everybody government, in the country? No, the government. You know, I mean, it, so, you know, something has to happen there. And, and, and creating a, you know, a culture of, of open source kids, I think, is a, you know, a good start. So I think it's going to be another disruptive technology, but it will be disruptive in those countries. And it will be disruptive in a way that produces a differently educated generation. And whether that will come out positive, negative, both in every which way, nobody knows yet. Probably turned to crap, but, but it's, there's, it's a, there's a huge opportunity. <laughs> there's a guy back here who's had his hand up for a long time. Uh, two things. Uh, first, to address her, her point about a totalitarian, uh, totalitarian government getting their hands on a million of them and not wanting the students to have uh, a free operating system on it. Our contracts are open. They can replace them. You know, they can, you know, they can blow away Linux and trigger and everything else on there and replace what they want I mean, on every single OLPC. Right. But to the, or to the same end, so can all the people, so can all the kids and their families actually get it. So, you know, the upside there is it's control for the people, not for the, you know, not for the government, not control over, and, which is where the bad And I think it's very, it's actually, you know, if, Spend time in China and come back and tell me that that's a totalitarian government at this point in the usual sense of the word. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of different things going on in China. There are a lot of different factions. There are a lot of people who are determined. Actually, I would say more more zealous about creating genuine liberty in China than there are in the United States. Well, they have more people. Well, <laughs> as a percentage, but, I mean, but they also people, have recent experience in power of, in China. People uh, in power, who large care about fraction this. of their populace being killed off by their own social programs. Right. I mean, they're wary. They're, I think, understandably wary of these big cyclonic madnesses that that happen in China periodically, like the Great Cultural Revolution. And they, you know, they don't they don't want to f- allow that sort of thing to easily form. So they try to keep some kind of, you know some kind of uh, resistance in the loop. But, you know, I think most people in China, officials that I talk to, are, they don't think of themselves as being a, a totalitarian state at all. Well, I think most of the people in the government here would make the same answer. <laughs> but less credibly. The mesh networking aspects are proprietary. It's firmware from more bad yeah, it's true. There's there's, there's two pieces of firmware in there, both the Marvell and the uh, embedded controller that controls the power in the keyboard. They are. It's true. The plan is actually to rewrite it. It was. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it, it remains so. The speed of implementation. Right. Before they well, there's, I think they're also still trying to negotiate to, to get, you know, that opened up. Yeah, I spoke with a number of the OPC tech leads, and they couldn't give me a solid answer for right. whether or not they were I mean, this, yeah. this, all, this all came together incredibly fast. Oh, I know. It's the, it's the, it was the one thing that I've, I've heard it touted repeatedly. I mentioned networking is a wonderful thing. It just worries me slightly. Even a company as decent as Marvell uh, is still in that unusual position where you have two really nasty Achilles heels in the middle of something that's touted as wonderfully well, the other piece there is that the mesh networking implements an IEEE standard that's fairly new. It's 802.11s, I think. So, so you can get the specs for it and re-implement it yourself, in theory. We'll, we'll see how closely the theory matches. Yeah, next. Uh, this perhaps sounds like a flip the question, but I don't mean it that way. But I would, I'd love my kids here in California to have $140 laptops. Is there any... You know, barrier to the same, the same yeah. design happening. Is that is there a groundswell for that happening? Christmas sales. Actually, the uh, <laughs> the barrier to its happening is is their their model for getting these out into the world is to do big deals for at least a million laptops. And nothing says they can't do one with Walmart. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. most most countries can do that. It turns out in the United States, the education bureaucracies are not centralized, right? They're not even centralized at a state level. It's by individual school districts. So it would require someone to put together a consortium of school districts that could buy a million laptops at a time from them and do the distribution and stuff. But, you know, and they're. Walmart. And but they it, are it, looking it at it. Doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I mean, this is still fluid. I mean, I this is not a bad idea. I mean, I think you know, conver- we can have a conversation with Nicholas and make it happen. Well, you know, you can go on their website and you can see which governors of which states have actually called up Walter and Nicholas and talked to them about it. And there's maybe about eight states. Oh, yeah. I think California is one of them. Uh, at this point, that's not where they're concentrated. Their intention is to do. Third world countries first, and if that's successful, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Uh, according to Mary Lou, this will be the fastest ramp up of production of a product ever done. The Xbox was the was the previous fastest, and they're trying to do it a little faster. So once they've satisfied the demand in the third world, they'll be able to do millions more for here. But but you'll probably want the second generation one, which will be the fifty dollar laptop. The, the one the one that has the hard disk. I don't mind waiting for the developing world to get first. Yeah. Yes? Um, I don't mean to rain on everybody's parade in terms of the $100 laptop, but what about in instances of inner cities where computers have been given and they just end up sitting there, not being used because they don't know how to use them or they're more pressing needs? Um, And I think that kind of skepticism has been largely ignored in terms of the $100 laptop because it's kind of like, well, how appropriate really is a computer in these kinds of environments in some well, countries like Malawi, the, for example, you know, or the, in Africa. The problem is, you know, at least in cities in the United States, is they give them to people who actually don't like them. I mean, they put them in the control of adults, for starters, and they, and they put them under the control of adults that are suspicious of computers because of the, the wrong generation anyway. And they, you know, they deal with the computers as there's something, you know, that can be easily broken. I mean, if you go to Brazil, where my pal, who's the Minister of Culture, has managed to, has managed to put up almost 600 computer centers over Brazil in the last two years. 
All of those computer centers are in the hands of the, the kids that are using them. They find the toughest kid that they can find, and they have him in charge of taking care of the computers. You know, these are in favelas. And they, the, the, the computers belong to the kids, and they get used all the time. You go into one of those computer centers, and they're constantly being used. It's just, it's just American education is so screwed up, you know. I was a public school teacher for many years and a literacy specialist. And, you know, this whole notion of kids will teach other kids, that has a role once people are already literate. And you can't replace a, a human with a computer. How did you so, learn how to use a computer? Did you learn it from a teacher? Well, I was a sure before I learned to use a computer. What? You you were a nerd before? I was literate. You were literate, yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, another thing is you have to have a more knowledgeable other there to... How many people in this in this room learned how to use a computer from from some academic environment? I think she's saying I think she's saying that if you can't read, you can't teach yourself how to use a computer. It's not so. Oh yeah, not at all. Why would that be? I mean, I, 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 I you know your daughters learned to use computers exactly. I mean, all, all my kids were were using computer pretty proficiently before they could read. They just knew where things were placed on the screen. I mean, it's the same they way that see the little if you find yourself using a computer in a different language, if you're kind of familiar with the computer, you can still get, get it to do stuff. You don't have to read it. But I think in that situation, what you described is kind of a cultural environment that really supports the ability for your children to be able to go in and engage with the computer. I mean, your presence and that kind of familiarity. But I think in a situation where it's really a foreign object being kind of put into this environment, it's, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm just scared. I, 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 I spent... You know, two years, three years on and off, going around Africa, getting countries hooked up to the Internet, and watching what happened in these places. You know, we, we have all these arrogant notions about, you know, these, these poor savages, you know, and, and how they will never understand our mighty technology. I mean, it just, it, it, it floors me. I mean, the, you go there, you go to the places where I was now, in the beginning, and you see computer systems in every beauty parlor. I mean, the beauty parlors are the big places they got them. I mean, they, they've got them in the most random sorts of places, and, and, and ordinary people are using them. They're not scared of them at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we have a powerful hand I, in the back. I just, I'd like to say that while that happened, that happens, and it certainly did happen earlier when there were, you know, rollouts of putting computers in with no backup and that sort of thing, it's, it's kind of a, a, a misguided rep to leave with inner cities because what's much more common is community technology centers and other programs going on where they're doing great things. They all, all those programs got gutted by the Bush administration, but still, there's really a lot of great, inspiring stuff happening yeah. in the inner city. So I would hate to yeah. leave it that that's what's going on. There's, the there's Project Mouse in New York, which does stuff. amazing, amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I, if I could just add... A little bit. That my girlfriend was in Burkina Faso. She's a journalist there. She had a laptop with her. They got an 18% literacy rate. She sat down, and everybody was looking at it because they're like they're pictures. And so it was a visual literacy of like, oh, the icon means an idea, and I don't have to know what the certain characters are to have a dress. What you're saying, and so and what they were funny was that a lot of the problems they were having in the educational system was because they were speaking French to the kids who didn't speak French back, and they didn't have a system where they could ask questions. So it wasn't interactive. So, A, you had a visual literacy interactive system with a lot of interest in it, as opposed to antiquated 
education system where nobody was passing. So it's, it's, that's the other side of it, maybe, you know? I think another aspect of that is that the user interface is, for the most part, still very text-based. It's very word-based. If you think about pretty much anything, when all the menus come down and you're getting little character strings, whereas more and more of what is passing in and out of the computer is very visual. It's, you know, it's video. And so that's probably one of the paradigms that's going to shift. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Is that the interface really, I mean, you look at a browser, and you've got a couple of arrows and a couple of pictures, and that pretty much defines your experience, again, unless you go into the... The, the thing that's happening in these, in these Brazilian computer centers is that, is that most of them are using, it, using them for musical purposes, and they don't have to read to, to get them to work for that purpose. And, and, that's, and that's what sucks them in. So, folks, we're at time now. Um, I think we could go on for several more hours, but um, in deference to our speakers who've come a long way, uh, I'm going to wrap things up here. Thanks. And I want to thank you all for your great questions thank and you, for Jim. your interest. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I would be remiss if I didn't point out how deeply I hope John Perry was correct when he said that he didn't think nuclear war was possible anymore. Keep in mind the fact that this was said in the year 2006, and I agreed with him back then. But today, with that mentally impaired child who is the commander-in-chief of the most powerful military in history, well, I'm now back to where I was in grade school during the 1950s when we did duck and cover drills. Sadly, we are being led by a confederacy of dunces and no one has a clue as to what major world events lie ahead. My only advice is to not let your supply of cannabis get too low. As Terence McKenna often said, keep the old faith and stay high. Actually, uh, I thought about giving you an update on the various EFF projects that they talked about back in 2006, but since this podcast is already quite long, I decided that if you're really interested in one or more of these topics, that you'll go to EFF.org yourself and read about them, which uh, is why the Internet is here, after all. I'm going to close now by first playing a recording of John Perry Barlow reading his Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. Then I'll follow that by playing a song that on more than one occasion inspired me to get back into the game of life as a player rather than just as another spectator. The song that I'm going to play is from the Grateful Dead, of course, and it's titled We Can Run. It was written by John Perry and the Grateful Dead's keyboard player, Brent Midland, who also sings it. Hopefully, uh, some of the suggestions that Barlow and Gilmore made in this podcast today will spark an idea or two in you that will convince you to stop running after these elusive consumer dreams, if that's what you're doing, and stop hiding from what, deep down, you know to be your destiny. More than once I've had to decide to stand up and be counted yet again, and it's always turned out to be worth the risk. No one needs to tell you what to do. You're the best judge of that for yourself. We're all in this together, you know, and your fellow saloners are counting on you to do your best, just as John Perry Barlow has inspired us all to do. So press on. By the way, did you know that one of the words that I use from the first and last lines of every podcast from the Psychedelic Salon, the word cyberdelic, 
Did you know that that word was coined by none other than John Perry Barlow? So each week when you listen to these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon and you hear me say the word cyberdelic, well, I hope that it'll bring the memory of John Perry Barlow back to your mind and in that way we can help to keep his wonderful spirit alive. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from cyberdelic space. Be well, my friends. A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, as written by John Perry Barlow at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, on February 8, 1996. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. We have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one, so I address you with no greater authority than that with which liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement we have true reason to fear. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. You have neither solicited nor received ours. We did not invite you. You do not know us, nor do you know our world. Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. Do not think that you can build it as though it were a public works project. You cannot. It is an act of nature and it grows itself through our collective actions. You have not engaged in our great and gathering conversation, nor did you create the wealth of our marketplaces. You do not know our culture, our ethics, or the unwritten codes that already provide our society more order than could be obtained by any of your external impositions. You claim there are problems among us that you need to solve. You use this claim as an excuse to invade our precincts. Many of these problems don't exist. Where there are real conflicts, where there are wrongs, we will identify them and address them by our means. We are forming our own social contract. This governance will arise according to the conditions of our world, not yours. Our world is different. Cyberspace consists of transactions, relationships, and thought itself, arrayed like a standing wave in the web of our communications. Ours is a world that is both everywhere and nowhere.
but it is not where bodies live. We are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. Your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are based on matter. There is no matter here. Our identities have no bodies, so unlike you, we cannot obtain order by physical coercion. We believe that from ethics, enlightened self-interest, and the common wheel, our governance will emerge. Our identities may be distributed across many of your jurisdictions. The only law that all of our constituent cultures would generally recognize is the golden rule. We hope we will be able to build our particular solutions on that basis. But we cannot accept the solutions you are attempting to impose. In the United States, you have today created a law, the Telecommunications Reform Act, which repudiates your own constitution and insults the dreams of Jefferson, Washington, Mill, Madison, de Tocqueville, and Brandeis. These dreams must now be born anew in us. You are terrified of your own children, since they are natives in a world where you will always be immigrants. Because you fear them, you entrust your bureaucracies with the parental responsibilities you are too cowardly to confront yourselves. In our world, all the sentiments and expressions of humanity, from the debasing to the angelic, are parts of a seamless whole, the global conversation of bits. We cannot separate the air that chokes from the air upon which wings beat. In China, Germany, France, Russia, Singapore, Italy, and the United States, you are trying to ward off the virus of liberty by erecting guard posts at the frontiers of cyberspace. These may keep out the contagion for a small time, but they will not work in a world that will soon be blanketed with bit-bearing media. Your increasingly obsolete information industries would perpetuate themselves by proposing laws in America and elsewhere that claim to own speech itself throughout the world. These laws would declare ideas to be another industrial product no more noble than pig iron. In our world, Whatever the human mind may create, 
can be reproduced and distributed infinitely at no cost. The global conveyance of thought no longer requires your factories to accomplish. These increasingly hostile and colonial measures place us in the same position as those previous lovers of freedom and self-determination who had to reject the authorities of distant, uninformed powers. We must declare our virtual selves immune to your sovereignty, even as we continue to consent to your rule over our bodies. We will spread ourselves across the planet so that no one can arrest our thoughts. We will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before. Davos, Switzerland, February 8, 1996, and read in New York City, July 30th, 2013. We don't own this place, though we act as if we did. It belongs to the children of our children's kids. The actual
sky 